Thanks for joining us today. My name is Amber Ora, and I'm the Deputy Spokesperson for the Department of State's Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. I'm here today with the Chief U.S. Negotiator for the Columbia River Treaty, Jill Smale. We're going to talk about how the United States and Canada are working together to modernize the Columbia River Treaty regime. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to review what has happened since the United States and Canada began negotiations late May. In the past five months, the countries have held two rounds of negotiations, first in May in Washington, D.C., and most recently in August in Nelson, British Columbia. Jill, you and other members of the U.S. negotiating team held two town hall meetings, one in Spokane, Washington, and another in Portland, Oregon. I know you took questions from the public and have been responding to queries via Columbia River Treaty at state.gov. There's a lot of interest in the treaty, and I want to use the opportunity today to ask you, as the chief U.S. negotiator, some frequently asked questions. So thank you, Jill, for speaking with me today. Thank you, Amber, for sitting down to do this with me. This is a very exciting time to be working on the treaty. People in the Northwest have anticipated and planned for this for many years. At the Department of State, we are eager to move forward to help define how Americans and Canadians, including the tribes in the United States and First Nations in Canada, will continue to mutually benefit from the Columbia River Treaty. Great. Let's jump right in. Can you tell me why this treaty is important? The Columbia River Basin is key to the quality of life and the economy of the Pacific Northwest, particularly Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington. Just to give you a sense of the scale, the Columbia River Basin is the size of Texas. It provides more than 40% of total U.S. hydroelectric generation. It also irrigates $8 billion worth of agriculture products and moves 42 million tons of commercial cargo valued at over $20 billion each year. We began working with Canada to cooperate on the development of the Columbia River in the 1940s. The 1948 Vanport flood showed us the importance of accelerating cooperation with Canada. In that flood, 18,000 people in the community of Vanport in what is now northern Portland, Oregon, lost their homes and many lost their lives. Oh, wow, that's terrible. It was. And it showed us that we urgently needed to address flooding and prevent the loss of life and property as the region developed. Through the Columbia River Treaty, we sought to develop our shared resources in a way that would contribute to the economic progress and general welfare of people in both countries. We agreed that we could get the greatest benefit by cooperating with Canada on flood risk management and hydroelectric power generation, which would make other benefits possible as well. The treaty was signed in the 1960s. Its flood risk management and hydropower operations have provided substantial benefits to millions of people on both sides of the border and enabled additional benefits throughout the Columbia River system. This includes supporting the river's ecosystem, irrigation, municipal water use, industrial water use, navigation, and recreation. I understand there are different types of dams in the Columbia River Basin. Are they all included in this negotiation? That's a very good question. Our discussions with Canada focus on water flowing across the border and how water is stored and released per the treaty in three Canadian dams, Keenly Side, which is also known as Arrow, Duncan, and Micah. Our discussions will also address Libby Dam in the United States. These four dams are referred to as the treaty dams. 
In June, my Canadian counterpart and I saw firsthand the results of U.S. and Canadian cooperation as our teams took a joint tour of some of the infrastructure along the Columbia and Kootenai Rivers. We visited Libby, the Dalles, and Grand Coulee Dams in the United States. And in Canada, we visited Keenly Side Dam at Arrow Lakes and Kootenai Canal Plants and Revelstoke and Mica Dams. I also want to point out that while the Dalles and Grand Coulee Dams were not constructed pursuant to the treaty like the other dams I just mentioned were, we visited them because we know they are important to the basin and are impacted by treaty operations. Now, how does having visited the dams together help you with the negotiation? Viewing these locations together helped build a common understanding of the significant cooperation between the United States and Canada on these transboundary rivers. Hopefully, this will help us move forward to develop a modernized treaty regime that people from the basin on both sides of the border can support. Can you explain why is it the United States and Canada want to modernize the Columbia River Treaty? So for the United States, while we think the treaty has been tremendously successful and it continues to be a model for transboundary water cooperation, after over 50 years, we see areas where we think things can be improved. Additionally, under the treaty, we paid Canada to store and release water in its portion of the Columbia River Basin for flood control in the United States through 2024. After 2024, the treaty's flood risk management provisions changed to a less defined approach in how we work together and compensate Canada for its role in managing water flows across the border. By modernizing the Columbia River Treaty regime, we seek continued careful management of flood risk. We also want to ensure a reliable and economical power supply to improve ecosystem benefits. Now, let me stop you for a minute. I've heard you say regime a couple times. Why are you using that word in this context? Well, I know the word regime can sound strange. When I say regime, I mean the treaty itself, the protocol, and various implementing agreements that we've used over the years to carry out our cooperation. Treaty implementation has been shaped by exchanging notes between the two governments and through operational and supplemental agreements by the U.S. and Canadian implementing entities. This includes agreements for managing water flows to meet ecosystem objectives in both countries. So when we talk about modernizing the treaty regime, this includes a focus on modernizing how we implement the treaty. Thanks. That makes sense. So could you discuss in more detail what you hope to achieve on behalf of the United States by modernizing the treaty regime? Well, Amber, firstly, technology and the Northwest energy market have transformed dramatically since the 1960s. The Northwest is much more energy efficient than once predicted, and the demand for energy in the region is lower than originally predicted. As we negotiate with Canada, we want to take these and other changes into account when looking at downstream power benefits. We also want to maximize the shared benefits by coordinating operations, and we will seek to ensure those benefits are shared equitably. Secondly, the Northwest is a pillar of the U.S. economy, and millions of people depend on flood risk management to protect their lives, property, and businesses. Both governments need to determine together how we will address post-2024 changes in the treaty and manage flood risk. Thirdly, we want to improve ecosystem benefits for fish and wildlife in both countries in a manner that appropriately balances with other benefits. We believe both countries have a shared interest in a sustainable ecosystem.
We also recognize there are a variety of uses and interests beyond those three I just listed, including the importance and economic contribution to the region of maintaining navigation, recreation, irrigation, and municipal and industrial use of the river. We want to modernize the treaty in a way that is good for these interests too. And we know both countries will need flexibility to address future changes. It will be challenging to define how we plan for the future unknowns, such as climate variability and water supply, but it's clear we want to work through these issues together. So speaking of planning for unknowns, how does climate change affect your negotiations? The modernized treaty needs to be flexible to adapt to changes. In the negotiations, we're seeking ways to be able to address future changes in snow and rainfall patterns and ecosystem needs. We would also like to have the flexibility to adapt to new technology and take into account new information as it becomes available. Can you explain how the U.S. government developed its objectives and priorities for these negotiations? Yes. The U.S. government received input from the people who were most directly affected by the treaty through the U.S. entity's 2013 regional recommendation for the future of the Columbia River Treaty after 2024. I know that's a mouthful, so let me explain. The U.S. entity is composed of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Northwestern Division and the Bonneville Power Administration, which is a government agency that is part of the Department of Energy. After years of consultations with the Pacific Northwest states, tribes, and federal agencies in the region, and through extensive stakeholder engagement, the U.S. entity developed this regional recommendation. I'm personally grateful to everyone who participated in the regional recommendation process, which I know required a lot of communication, hard work, and compromise to reach a consensus. Ultimately, the regional recommendation concluded it is in the best interest of the United States to modernize the treaty regime so that our legacy of mutual benefits with Canada will continue into the future. And why is it that the State Department is leading these negotiations? So as a lead foreign affairs agency for the U.S. government, the Department of State has responsibility regarding negotiating and concluding international agreements and treaties. When did you, Jill Smale, start working on the treaty? Have you worked on similar issues in the past? I started as chief negotiator for the treaty in October 2017, so I've been on the on the portfolio for almost a year. I've been at the State Department for a total of 18 years. Just before this assignment, I spent eight years working on transboundary water issues in the Middle East, which prepared me well for working on this treaty. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to work on an issue that has a direct impact on so many American lives and livelihoods. And I'm also grateful for the great negotiating team that is working with me on this treaty. Who else is on the negotiating team for the U.S., and how do you work together? In addition to the Department of State, which leads the team, there are representatives from the Bonneville Power Administration and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Northwestern Division, which you recall together form the U.S. entity. And we also have representatives from the Department of Interior and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration on the team. I want to note that many folks on the team also live and work in the region and have ongoing working relationships with the tribes, state governments, local governments, and stakeholders. Many of them pl also played key roles throughout the regional recommendation process and understand the need to be faithful to the consensus that was developed through that effort. 
So there are no tribes on the U.S. negotiating team, I believe. And if not, how are they involved in the negotiating process? Our foreign policy judgment that the best way to balance the United States objectives and conclude a successful agreement with Canada in a timely manner is to limit the U.S. negotiating team to a small team of federal agencies. We value the expertise, experience, and input of the tribes. The Department of State has maintained regular contact and communication with them on developments related to the modernization of the treaty regime since the regional recommendation was submitted, and will continue to engage with the tribes on a regular basis as negotiations proceed. In fact, we're working with them to develop a plan for meaningful dialogue throughout the negotiating process. How are the negotiations going with Canada? Do you think you're making headway? Well, as we discussed earlier, we've met twice so far first in Washington, D.C. in May, and again in Nelson, British Columbia in August. While I can't get into the specifics of the ongoing negotiations, I can say that our conversations were productive and that we're working well together. How long do you think negotiations will take? Well, we want to move forward at a good pace with time to work on the technical preparations necessary between sessions. Our next negotiating session is scheduled for October 17th and 18th in Portland, Oregon. With so many folks from the public interested in the treaty, can you talk a little more about the town halls and how people can get information on the negotiations? As negotiations continue with our Canadian counterparts, we are holding regular town halls throughout the region in the United States to hear views from the public on this process and the treaty. The first town hall was in Spokane, Washington on April 24th, and the most recent one was in Portland, Oregon on September 6th. We're finalizing arrangements for another one in early 2019, so stay tuned. The best way to track down developments on the negotiations and upcoming town halls is by emailing us at columbiarivertreatyatstate.gov and signing up to receive updates from us as events are scheduled. We've gotten questions and comments through that email address, and while we might not be able to answer each of them individually, we read them all and take those ideas into consideration. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Jill. This has been very interesting. Any parting words before we wrap up? Well, I really appreciate the opportunity, Amber. I'd just add that we're really looking ahead to how this treaty can continue to be mutually beneficial in the years ahead and faithful to the desires of the people who live in the Columbia River Basin. The treaty is an extremely important agreement with one of our closest allies and partners in the hemisphere. We really value our deep and unique relationship with Canada. I'm confident that as we lay out our respective positions and turn them into a shared vision for the future of the basin, we'll be able to find common ground. Thank you, Jill, and thank you to everyone for joining us today. Thank you, Amber.